Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Okay, well hi, well first of all, I'm extremely happy to introduce you both. You both mean very much to me, and uh, I think this is going to be a really incredible conversation. So Marsha, meet my dad, Bill. Bill, meet Marsha, Tommy's Marcia, mom. my pleasure. I, I like your son, I, I like your son a lot. You met him. Oh, oh yeah, I met him. And, yeah, and once you met, and once you, and once you met him, you don't forget him. This is true. He's kind of <laughs> forgettable. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I think that this is a really important conversation to have now, especially as we head into what I hope is a new phase for this country in a post-Trump, or at least post-Trump as president era. Um, I think for a lot of us, like you know, people my age who you know, went through Obama and kind of, you know, have traveled through a lot of different circles and believed that this country was really ready for a kind of much more fair, much more, I wouldn't call it post-racial, but that like we had left some of these major, major problems and experiences behind us. And I think that what's been revealed in these last several years, and particularly this last year and these last several months with COVID and kind of all the inequities and, you know, post-George Floyd, all of the kind of racial attitudes that are still so stubborn. Um, I think it's disillusioned a lot of us, uh, you know, myself included. And I think that I thought it'd be really helpful to get perspective from people who, you know, have been through all this before, um, understand kind of what kind of country we've been living in this whole time and maybe give us some context and a little bit of perspective as we, you know, try to generate hope and a vision for a future. Let's start with Marsha. Uh, I will say your, your full title, which is Dr. Marsha Hirano Nakanishi, a very long-term educator, uh, education executive. She was a vice chancellor for the CSU system. She has a lot of experience um, on the board of WestEd. She also is very involved as an alumni of Harvard, uh, a graduate of Stanford, class of 71 and uh, an overall badass. And on top of that, she is the mother of a very dear friend of mine. And I've gotten to know her over the course of the last several years. Um, Marsha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And then, oh, please, it is truly my pleasure and honor. Um, and then we also have my namesake, uh, Bill Borden, William Borden Jr. Uh, he is an Air Force veteran fighter pilot. He is a actually interesting and relevant to this discussion. He has a, a lot of experience as a, a broadcaster in Sacramento. He's also sold cars. He's sold insurance. He has had a variety of lives. And he is also a very avid tennis player um, at the moment. I think that to start off, um, why don't we just kind of say, like, how have you been? I mean, this has been rough for everybody this last few months. And I think that, you know, on a couple of occasions, Dad, you've said this is an unprecedented time. Uh, why don't we start with you? Kind of like, what has it been like to experience 2020 from your perspective? Well, it really hasn't been uh, that bad. I mean, for me personally, you know, uh, one, one thing, when, when your mom was here, we pretty, pretty much uh, spent most of our time alone, you know? So, uh, I mean, we socialize, of course, but we, we like spending most of our time together. So the fact that you have to self-isolate and that sort of thing, it hasn't been that big of an adjustment for me. You've been isolated. Uh, I've, been, I've been isolated. I, I've been isolated. Uh, it seems like all my life. 
And uh, so this really hasn't been, uh, and plus I have the ability to, uh, to entertain myself. You know, uh, normally what would I do? I play tennis almost every day. And you know, the, the club, as you know, the club is only five, six, seven minutes away. So I'll go there and I come back and I got the dog, I got Gatsby. And uh, I'll just come home and, you know, and, and just kind of pontificate, you know, just kind of, I, I talk to myself a lot. And I have to be careful because at home, nobody cares. And I have to be careful that I don't start talking out loud in public. You know, I have to, I have to catch myself occasionally. Well, I'm glad that we're giving you a platform where you can speak I, you know, I am to other people I, I am. very but, readily. But, uh, and, and as far as uh, the political atmosphere is concerned, um, I, I, I figure that this is all happening for a reason. You know, when your mom died, I had the adoptive, uh, the philosophy that things happen for a reason. And uh, it, was, it was difficult at first to come to that conclusion, you know, when this, it's the worst tragedy of, uh, of, my, of my lifetime. But I found out that if, if, I, if I say it happened for a reason, it forces me to look for a good reason, you know, as opposed, as opposed to um, having it that it, it, it wasn't supposed to happen, but happened anyway. You know, there was no, there's no, there's no sense of comfort in that. But if I have it that it was meant to be and, um, and for a good reason, then I find that I start searching for a good reason. And there's a, probably a good reason that Trump is president. You know, a guy told me a long time ago that you have to get into agreement with what is in order to do anything about it. So, uh, so if Trump is president, he's president for a reason. And you're speaking about the racial uh, tensions and everything else. I, it, that, that, that has never gone away. And I think what, what has happened is that it exposed it now. And the one, the one, the one thing that Trump did, uh, what his presidency has done, is ripped the cover off now. You know, you, 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 now everybody knows where everybody is now. You know, you can't be in the middle with Trump about him personally. You either, you either despise him for what he represents or you adore him for what he represents. And, uh, and that's how it is. So everybody knows now. It's, it's, it's all out in the open now. There are no more secrets. You know who your neighbors are now. You know who your coworkers are now. You know everything, and, and they know you. So, uh, so in that respect, uh, this is something that the time has come. The, the time has come in America for this to be, uh, for, for, for it to be what it is. Okay. Well, I think that that, and we'll get into exactly kind of what it is, uh, but I think you're right. Um, and Marsha, how have you been doing and kind of how have you been experiencing all this recently? Um, well, not traveling is a big deal since Tom and I did a lot of that. Um, but, you know, he's been there for me. And so he does all the grocery shopping. He does all the food pickups and orders. We go to these amazing gardens every morning. It's total sanity. Um, so, you know, we spend time together. It like chills us down. We get exercise. And then you take some deep breaths and you, so yeah, it hasn't for me been that hard, but your heart bleeds for all the people who have no jobs, who have no food. I mean, my God. So that part's really hard. And to be our age, Bella, not me, it's like we can't do anything to help, really. 
you know, I can give money and I can give money to food banks and stuff, but I can't be out there helping people who need more. And that's, that's okay. Cause when you're our age, they tell you, you need to shelter down. So yeah, it's been easy in one sense, but also hard to not know what you can do that actually could matter. Right. And I think, I think a lot of us are feeling that way, even young people. I mean, first of all, you've helped a lot of people along the way. So I think that, you know, both of you have. So I think that there is some comfort to say, you know, it's time to kind of stand back and let a lot of other people kind of take more of a burden. Um, I mean, isolation is especially hard, I think, you know, in a time where there's so much tumultuousness and there is so much suffering, but um, part, well, part of this, whole episode is like i think that how you can really help is kind of giving us a roadmap or you know your experiences of like what has this country always been i mean one thing you said dad is you know you've you've that's the silver lining in my mind of trump is that you have unmasked what this country really is you can't lie anymore you can't you know yes we can yourself to sleep like this shit is real and it is exposed so and i think that that is a silver lining and so part of this i think is kind of understanding the context for how this is not new so i want to go a little bit into kind of like what it was like to grow up i mean you're the parent of Japanese immigrants, Marsha. You have relatives who are in turn. You were raised in LA and in the Midwest, but like in Chicago, where it was pretty multiracial, you know, is my understanding of kind of the way that you grew up. Like knowing all that, kind of like what were your earliest impressions of this country, you know, as a Japanese American woman trying to navigate to wherever you wanted to go? When you're a kid and your parents were scared to death because everything had been yanked from them. So my parents were Asian isolates from Montana and Utah. Mm. They they moved to Los Angeles when my grandfather, who was on the trains in Montana, got hit by a train. So my father brought everybody to Los Angeles. His, His mentally ill mother, his sisters, and his brother. My mother took care of her father her sisters, her brother, because my grandmother, I learned way late in life, had actually killed herself. So that was kind of weird, but they met in LA just in time to get interned. So they they were, uh, they never talked about it, not at all while I grew up. Um, My mom moved to Chicago because my dad's whole family had moved there. And I was born there. And my aunt, my eldest aunt, lived there. She was the feisty one on my dad's side. She, you know, she was in a camp. And at one point, she just said, I'm not going back to that place. Took off to Chicago with my my, uh, cousin, uh, ultimately divorced my horrible uncle married a wonderful African-American principal that she actually taught. So they, wow. were, they were totally ahead of their time. They were totally ahead. Oh, yeah, I would say too. <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, when I took my husband, Don, who was like pure as the driven snow, right? Don never did drugs. We'd walk in and he'd say, 
something smells here. I said, yeah, auntie's going to say it's sage. <laughs> so we're just going to call it sage. Okay, Don, that's fine. Yeah, sage, sage, why not? And, you know, they were just cool. You know, they were anti-war from way back um, and lived on the south side for a long time and moved to the north side. So that's my dad's side, always much more liberal. I think the ants all knew the words to Dylan's songs. They were all crazy. Wonderful, wonderful people. And, uh, but it was too cold in Chicago. So we moved back to LA. And I think my dad decided he never, ever wanted to work for anybody ever again. So he became a gardener. And my mom was a seamstress. And they never spoke about anything, about the camps, about anything. We kept our heads low. We were supposed to do well, um, work hard, and that's the way to get ahead. I was told later by my aunts that my mom was fretting all the time, that there was no way she could pay for college, but she taught me everything I knew. And in fact, I I actually remember screaming at my second grade teacher, who was a Japanese American, who told my mom that she had ruined me for life in math because I refused to take the 10 ones I traded in for 110. Like, really? We don't have to do manipulatives if we know what we're doing. Yeah, um, and, and you knew math very well. In fact, <laughs> your whole career has been proof of that. I was really good at it. And because she yelled at my mom, my sister never learned anything because my mom said, well, I guess I did the wrong thing. I was going to kill her if I ever met her in real life. She really made me angry. So, yeah, it was uh, weird. So Don and I actually never knew a lot about the camps until our parents got together and started talking. Mm. Was that common, you think, like for growing up, you know, when you did as a Japanese American, like did most of the parents not talk about that? I mean, like did society talk about what had happened? Like, especially in Los Angeles, like the impression, you know, that I get is that California was considered this melting pot where a lot of the like racism of other parts of the country, like didn't really reach it. Like, what was your experience of that? For me, um, I didn't feel it in my neighborhood. Um, you know, there was, you know, Tina, Tina, China men and that kind of stuff. But, you know, nothing, nothing like the East Coast. Where, hmm, that was hmm. physical. That was physical violence. L.A. In, and the place where I lived was kind of a transitional working class neighborhood. And so, you know, we kind of lived leave it to beaver. Donna Reed, whatever. We played jacks. We played, we, you know, I did Mickey Mouse. We watched every musical on television um, until- Pretty assimilated I, in some ways, you know, like kind of like- There were like, in LA, there were two or three communities that were really multiracial. There was one up near Pasadena at near high school and there was my neighborhood and there was another one down in Gardena where people actually got along. Did that mean it was good? No. By junior high school, the tracks institutionalized racism. There were no blacks in the college going track. There were no Latinos in the college going track. You knew, I knew, there was some, 
like I wasn't in classes with my friends. I mean, so, but it was, it was that systemic racism that was there. And it was, uh, and, and so, you know, when Japanese Americans would get together, they'd say what camp you were in, but mostly just to kind of establish were you at Poston or Manzanar or wherever. And it wasn't really until um, the 60s, the late 60s, where a lot of that came together. You know, the, the San Francisco state strikes and, and the rest, where you just could not, like, let it go any longer. Sure. Well, I think that, I mean, that's really interesting because I feel like you had a whole class of highly traumatized people from like a specific event, you know, which is then contrasted with like the black experience where the event, the event was longer ago, but it's almost ongoing and unacknowledged. And you head every day, excuse me. You know, what we experienced is not even close, not even close. And, you know, that's the thing people have to learn. They really have to learn. I'm sorry. Because I do think that, you know, we all need to be woke. And it took, and and our educational system didn't teach us anything. And so we didn't even know it except if we observed it and thought about it. So I guess... Uh, you know, I want to get more into later the education system, given your role in it and how that might play. Not only has it played a part in kind of us not getting woke, but the future role. But I want to I want to move on to dad because you did mention, Marsha, like that it was nothing like the East Coast. And like, dad, you grew up in Philadelphia. Your family came from North Carolina, um, you know, to ostensibly to escape, you know, even harsher racism and kind of lack of opportunity and you grew up in an area of philly west philly born and raised that seemed to be at least somewhat multicultural kind of describe your experience kind of growing up you know prior to howard well um when i, w- I was born in 1943 right right in the middle of uh, world war ii and uh, when i was born the, the reason why i was born in philadelphia is my parents at the time were living in harrisburg the state capital and then when my dad went overseas right before i was born uh, my mom didn't want to have me alone, so she so she went up and stayed with my uncle, uh, her brother, her older brother, and uh, and I was born in Philly. And right after that, uh, we moved back. To, uh, my mom and I went back to Harrisburg, and uh, it was it was uh, it was fun. I mean, I was a kid. Um, my mom raised me for the first two years with just me and her, and. Uh, and and it, it was it was the projects, but it, it's not the kind of projects that you that you envision right now. It was like a, a close knit society because most of the women were alone because most of the guys were in the war. So it was just it was just uh, women and kids. And uh, my mom was a teacher. Uh, she, she had taught in North Carolina. She wasn't teaching then, but she taught me, you know, uh, by the time I, I started school. She had I, gone to college. Oh, yes, she graduated from college and, and she taught. Uh, right. She taught for years. Uh, but when she moved to Harris, when she moved uh, to Harrisburg, she didn't anymore. You know, she she, she raised me. And um, but she taught me um, when I started school. I already knew I knew the alphabet and the rest of that stuff. But I, I didn't do that well in school. I was I was left back in the second grade for some reason. My mom never told me why. But uh, I, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I can only why. imagine. I, I can imagine why, though. 
But as far as uh, being exposed to, uh, to racism, I didn't even realize, well, first of all, there were no white people in my neighborhood. So I, I didn't know why white people even existed, to tell you the truth. I, I don't know, but, but my, my pediatrician was white. I remember her vaguely. Uh, and, and a female pediatrician in 1940, I, that had to be pretty rare too. Um, but she was the only white person I ever saw. So it, it wasn't like, um, uh, and my mother really never talked about what was going on and what had gone on in North Carolina. Uh, when we moved to Philly, and then my brother and sister were both born, in, Susan and Johnny were both born in Harrisburg. And uh, we moved to Philly in 1949. I was six years old, and that's when I started school. Um, our neighbors were white, you know, so it, it, it was an uh, a integrated neighborhood. Uh, this, this was completely different from, from the uh, experience your mom had, because your mom was born in Houston, Texas, and, and ever, ever the segregated South. So, so her experience was completely different from mine. Um, uh, so, you know, it, 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 um, the neighborhood was, um, again, multicultural, uh, multiracial. Uh, I, I got along with everybody. It really didn't start to impact me in, in, in terms of difference until I, uh, let's see, I, I guess I, I was, I was in junior high school, you know, when, uh, when a bunch of these kids, you know, then the nigger words start coming around, you know, and I, and I, I don't, I don't know when it really kicks in. I, I remember when, one time I asked a white guy, I said, when, when does uh, it actually kick in for you when, when you think that you're a superior and you don't like black people and this, I've seen what, what age do you wake up one morning, you know, and say, damn, I hate niggers. You know, is, is that the way it happens or is it a gradual thing? But by the time you get to high, during high school, it has already happened. And you start realizing that there's a difference now in opinion and the way people look at you. But my, par my parents always told us that we were somebody. And since my mother, but by this time, my mother had started teaching again. She, she went to Temple and she got her master's and she started teaching. And she taught, basically, she, she taught everywhere. She taught in high school, she taught junior high school, but mainly she spent the time in elementary. And she said she wanted to stay in the second grade because she still felt she had a, an opportunity to, to mold people. She said, once they get beyond that, pretty much, you know, they're on their own. So she, she, she stuck with the second grade for, 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 for the rest of her career. Absolutely. But they always, thought, they, they always told us that we were worth something. And, she, and obviously, they stressed education. And I remember when I, it's interesting that you would say, uh, you talked about Blacks being on the, uh, the academic track. Uh, when I when I came home uh, after the the eighth grade, you decide what, what you're going to do, you know, whether you're going to be academic or general or whatever. And I came home and they said, Mom, I want to be an academic. And she said, fine, that's what we wanted you to do anyway. But we wanted you to decide on your own. And so that's what I did. And for a lot, I think the whole time there was one other black male in, in my in my classes in junior high school. And there were, there were several girls. I think it might have been five or six black girls. But I, before, for a long time, I was the only one. I was the only male. And, Same you know, here. That, that, that seemed kind of strange, you know, at, at first. But I knew that that's, that was my track. Plus, by that time, I, uh, I had decided I wanted to be a pilot. You know, I, uh, my dad took me to a... Um, we, we lived right near the Philadelphia International Airport. And one day for whatever reason, my dad took me, there was an air show, and my dad took me 
And I remember walking out on the tarmac and I looked up and here was this jet fighter sitting on the tarmac. I had never seen one before in my life. Um, my parents bought me, you know, I, I, I'm skipping around now, but I think the seed was sown when I was a child, when my dad came home from the war, uh, they bought me this little aluminum airplane. And I'd never seen a real airplane before. And it, you know, you get in and it had little pedals and, and when you pedaled it, the, the propeller turned. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that- it, Like a, like a hot, like a, like a big wheels almost, but a plane? Well, you know, it moved, you know, but, and, and, and you actually sat, sat inside and, you know, and, and you pedaled it so it would move but it would also cause the propeller to turn in the front. So, so I was a, a pilot at, uh, at five or three or whatever old I was when they- uh, It must've been a sight to behold. It. it was a sight to behold, I'm sure. <laughs> but in any event, I see, I see this airplane and you know, I look around, you know, I walk in the, the, the ladder was leading up to the cockpit. So I, um, I looked around to see if anybody was looking and I climbed up on the, uh, the ladder and I looked into the cockpit and my whole life changed at that instant. When I, I was looking at all these gauges and switches and the stick and all this stuff I never even could imagine, I said, my God, you must have to be a genius or something. I mean, wh what kind of person can do this? And then uh, I've said this to people before, when I saw that and I had that moment, you know, that epiphany, I, I, I didn't, it wasn't so much that I, I, I wanted to do this for an occupation. It's like, this is what I was. You know, and now I just had to figure out how I can complete it. But I was a pilot and I was going to be one. And I got absolutely no encouragement from my parents or friends. I, I didn't know any pilots. You know, I, they, they, they talked about the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. So I knew there were black pilots. I just, I just didn't know any. And I got absolutely no encouragement from my classmates, especially after I got to high school. I remember a guy telling, I told one guy in high school that I wanted to be a pilot. He said, oh, man, you're too light, meaning I wasn't smart enough. And I said, well, I'm smart. <laughs> I, I said, I'm smart enough. And then he said, oh, well, then you, you, you might not be light enough then, he said. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, I said, that's I said, I said that I said, that could be, but, you know, we're, we're going yeah. to we're, we're gonna ha we're, we're gonna have to see. We're going to have to see. Well, so, I. So, but but, but the, the, point, the point is, the reason I brought that up, there's one thing I did know, too, is that in order to be a pilot, you have to be a college graduate. In order to be a, in order to be a pilot, by that time, you had to be an officer. And in order to be an officer, you had to be a college graduate. So I knew that to realize my dream, I had to go to college. And, so, and, that, and, and plus to be what I wanted to be, you know, to travel in the circles that I wanted to, to travel in. I had a, uh, a cousin that was a dentist in Philly. So, you know, and he went to Howard. And his wife went to Howard, but he graduated from Howard in 1921 and didn't school in 1925. Oh. So, so, you know, so I was around him a lot. And, and, and of course, my mom was a teacher. So we, we hung out with people who were educated. So that's, that, that, that was my, my upbringing. And that's, and, and that's the way I was nurtured. And, and, and that's the way the direction that uh, I, was, I was pointed to. The same as we did with you and Lynn. And there, there was no question that you guys were going to do what you ended up doing. There was no question about that. Uh, I remember when it was time for you to go to school uh, and you started out in the Sac City Unified School District. And the first thing your mother did is she called Sac City Unified to find out how kids got into the GATE program. 
She said, what, what do we have to do? How, how has that happened? And then they told her, they said, okay, well, he goes in the gate as a second grade, but the first grade teacher has to recommend him. She said, okay. And so when we got to your, your you know, the school that you started in first grade, she went right to the teacher. She said, we expect him to go to gate. What do we have to do? And then she said it. And then, you know, and that's what happened. So it, um, and it's only, it's only recently that I've been reading about, and, you know, Marsha, you spoke to this earlier that, you know, gate was basically a way to keep white students in the districts. So from its inception, it was meant to exclude kind of the multicultural, mostly black populations in a lot of cities that were forcing white parents to take their kids out. I didn't know that. I just thought that, you know, they didn't have proactive enough parents, but I didn't realize that the whole system was designed to be white. No, I, no. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either until right, right now. Yeah, that's what they were doing. Yes, and, and I, I sent Tom to get tested for a Gates program with Don, his father, who let him walk out of the Stanford Nate, so that like it's totally excluded Los Angeles Unified School District because they also <laughs> have no childcare. And mm. Los Angeles, you didn't get to choose which track you were in. They told you. Right. And I think that that's and that's and that's kind of in the, you know, how they kept it so racially homogenous. Um, well, what, well, one thing that I think is interesting, like, I'm glad you guys gave us so much detail, because I think that it shows kind of like how unusual your situations were in terms of like, you're in Chicago, you're, you know, Japanese American woman, you know, excelling in math, go to Stanford, dad, you're a, a black kid growing up in Philadelphia dreaming of being a pilot. And yet it doesn't seem as if you had like an upbringing that was really um, characterized by a lot of discrimination or a lot of um, kind of explicit racism. And I think that like you guys both kind of left your homes and dad, you, you know, went to Howard, which was all black, but then you went to the air force, which I want you to talk about. Marsha, you went, you know, to Stanford and kind of, I think got involved during this time. This is where well, you got to Stanford when 1969, 1968, 67. 67. So like in the midst of all this of people. So how did you, what was your kind of um, introduction to all of this uh, unrest in that time? So, so I'm going to say that the best thing, the thing that I realized right away is about the only reason I got into a really good college was the civil rights movement. And I always knew, always knew that I owed Thurgood Marshall and everybody who brought all of those cases and Martin Luther King and heck, even President Johnson and the Civil Rights Act of 65, which brought on the Higher Ed Act of 1965, which brought all that money for poor people to go to college. Because my mom had told my aunts that she didn't know what they were going to do because she was a seamstress. My dad was a gardener. And she didn't know how we were going to pay for college. You know, everyone in my family was first gen except for one uncle who was not blood relative. So we didn't know what the heck we were doing. And that whole set of circumstances changed everything, changed everything. Because in 66 and 67, 
all of those elite colleges suddenly descended on East and South Los Angeles and other places. Now, and for, now this is the part I'm gonna be clear about. They did not pick off very many Latinos or blacks. Stanford actually took a black in the class ahead of me. So that was cool. Um, a black. A <laughs> black. And I even, he was the student body president. So he got in. Okay. Oh, in high school. In high school. Oh, okay. But um, my college counselor was from Smith. She had me apply to all the seven sisters, Stanford, Rice, Chicago, because I had aunts and uncles there. And I got in everywhere. Everywhere. Wow. Full rides. Because there was all this money and they were feeling the powers that be were feeling guilt. Um, when I received an award from Harvard for doing admission stuff, the Dean of Admissions did, did say I was the first person from East or South LA to be admitted to Harvard Radcliffe. And I didn't go. Wow. And <laughs> Amen. <laughs> my husband, <laughs> who was interviewed by Harvard, but went to Yale, thank God. He got That's one, right, my man. one question. Did you take Greek or Latin in high school? And Don said, I took Spanish. And the guy said, our interview is over. That's okay. And I said, so you know, the world, I did tell the Dean that the world had changed because I would have nixed any interviewer who ever did that to anyone. We right. are ambassadors for these places. We need to know we are forwarding the best people possible. And that was a ludicrous, ludicrous question. I think I may have sworn a little bit at that point. Oh, no. You're fine. That to me. Safe space. That did not happen to me. There were exactly three people taken from um, Los Angeles for my class to Radcliffe. Two from Marlboro and me. And boy, did I not get in. So Stanford felt more pop, more positive. Plus the Dean of Admissions actually came down to talk to me, which was really weird. Well, no kidding. Well, you were, you were, you, he recognized who you were. He's like, we chose this person. Um, and like being on the campus, like Stanford, I mean, like, you know, when I was at Yale, me and Tommy were at Yale, I feel like it was the Bush years, but it did feel as if like being a person of color and this is, and I've, I haven't revised my opinion about my Yale experience, but I have revised my, you know, opinion of people who like did consider it a very racist place because I used to be like, maybe you just kind of made that a situation you had to grapple with. I didn't experience that, but I can only imagine what it was like to be on these campuses in the middle of the civil rights movement, you know, especially being like, among the first people from your background to be there. And then also being near Berkeley and kind of getting involved with kind of social justice in California. Uh, I know you spent some time in like the central Valley kind of, did that change your perspective on kind of what needed to happen in the U S in terms of making it a place that, you know, could generate many more marshes and dons. I will say that um, not exactly. I will say the things that mattered most before I went to Stanford was the reading list they sent. So they sent Graham Greene's Quiet American, 
which was about the French Indo-Chinese War. And they sent the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, and then the one thing that has stayed with me is Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. And that freshman year gave me a whole new perspective on the way I needed to look at things. I will say that Stanford was, Stanford really got totally involved with Vietnam. So we had, you know, everyone against the military industrial complex. They took on, you know, SRI and everybody else. So everything was really focused that way. Um, I hung out freshman year mostly with a guy from Muir High School from Pasadena who thought he was black and I thought it was Latino. So yeah, we went to BFU parties and um, uh, it was hard, you know, cause we all knew we didn't quite fit, but we weren't gonna let it stop us. And I will say that the African-Americans got their act together faster than anybody else. Um, I mostly stayed in education because I knew I wouldn't have been there otherwise. And I tutored in, in East Palo Alto. Um, you know, we all, we all about died when everyone kept getting assassinated. Because okay. I was, you know, it was that sp spring of my freshman year. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my, my experience was completely different. Uh, it was hard. Because prior, uh, prior to going to uh, the Howard, I, I had always gone to schools with white kids. Uh, I, I had uh, some cousins in North Carolina who only went to school with blacks, you know, because they're still segregated. And it was an eye when I got to Howard, it was an eye opening experience because I'm from the East Coast and like all of us from New York and Philly and all you, you know, your Eastern and Midwestern cities, we always had this attitude that we of course had a superior education to these poor, poor, poor blacks who went to, to high school in the South, you know. But see, what I learned is that they were taught by black teachers who cared about them, you see. And when I got to Howard, I found out that these kids were nurtured by these teachers who, who uh, belong to the same churches, they belong to the same civic organizations, the same as the white kids' teachers worked for them, you see. And, and uh, I also found out that they had a, 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 a much greater self-esteem with the respect that these kids were the homecoming queens, they were the class presidents, they were all the things that we weren't. There were no black well, first of all, we didn't have a homecoming queen, but if we did have one, I guarantee you she wouldn't have been black, you see. And so, um, and plus I arrived at Howard in 1962. Stokely Carmichael was a senior at Howard then. <laughs> and, 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 and we were, uh, it was during this transition period. You know, I, t I tell folks, we made the transition from, uh, from the stocking cap to the Afro while, while I was there. <laughs> and, uh, and so the whole thing was in turmoil. It was in a state of flux, you know, because things were happening now in 62 on. Yes. And I graduated. And when Carol, Carol graduated in 1965 and Lyndon Johnson was the speaker and at her, at her commencement exercise. 
So, I mean, so I was so happy that I got a chance to go there. And yes, it was a difference now that I had black teachers. I was around some of the smartest people I ever met in my life went to Howard. Yes. It was, it was like a, it, it was like a place where everybody was attracted to the best of the best. And I was happy to even be there to tell you the truth. Uh, so my whole, my whole experience uh, with that is different. Uh, as, as far as blatant racism is concerned, uh, again, th this is during the period when uh, of, of, of absolute segregation. Yes. And uh, Carol lived in Houston and I lived in Philly. So when we drove from Philly to Houston, I, I call it the Magnificent Seven. We had to go through Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Texas. And uh, you didn't stop. That there sounds like all the places I wouldn't want to be in one drive. <laughs> did, did. Now, I mean, today. You, you, you simply, well, it's nothing like it was then because you could actually stay in a holiday in now, you know. Uh, uh, you couldn't then. So you didn't stop, unless you knew people in these various towns, you know. In these this is the towns. green book, you know, basically. You, 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 you simply did not stop. And, and so that's how that was. And I, I had really never experienced that before. Carol had. And um, so, so, so that's how it was. Uh, as far as, 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 far as um, the, the, when this slapped me in the face, when I realized, when I realized just what white people are willing to do, if they have it, that you are responsible for them losing their whiteness or diminishing their whiteness, I was just about ready to graduate from pilot training. It was 1968. And at the, at the end, you had to do what they called a solo out and back. You flew from your home base to an isolated base uh, and you did whatever you had to do, you play plan and, and, you, and you flew back. So you just about ready to finish. This is all solo now. And, and this is also in a supersonic jet fighter type. Um, so I had to fly from Lubbock, Texas, reached their base in Lubbock, Texas to Barksdale Air Force Base, just outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. 1968. And when I got there, they have uh, what they call a follow me truck. And it will lead you to your parking space and the air, the airman there will come up and he'll help you out of your, your parachute and all your stuff. And then, uh, and think, I, I didn't think too much about it then. Uh, Cause I was thinking about, you know, just doing what I had to do and, and, uh, and going back. But when I think about it, when, when, when I raised my visor and he saw me, I could almost see his eyes cross. So I got out, you know, and thanked them for helping me. And, uh, oh, okay. Uh, this is a crux in the matter. I made a mistake. Uh, I was so used to flying out and coming right back to my base immediately that, uh, that there's a thing called gear pins, okay, that you put in your landing gear after you land, just to make sure that the landing gear doesn't collapse. But the gear pins are like a backup to a backup. And every airplane that has retractable gear has uh, what they call over center locks. So, so when the airplane lands, the locks will come down and lock, and lock the gear in place. So the, the gear pins are like a backup to a backup. Well, I forgot my gear pins. I left them back at least. So, uh, so when, I, when, when I landed and I realized what I had done, the first thing I did was check my over center locks to make sure they were locked. And they were. So I said, well, okay, well, I'm fine then. I said, the, on the only thing that could possibly cause this gear to collapse now is if the airplane is subjected to a severe lateral movement. I said, well, you know, there's no gale force winds in the forecast to blow the airplane sideways. So I'm like, you know, my shit is good. 
So I go, I do what I had to do. And on my way back, I look up and there are these three white airmen pushing my, pushing my airplane out of a, a pool of fuel. So what they had done, they had deliberately over, one of their job is, is to refill the airplane and get me ready to go back. And they know exactly how much gas to put in there. Well, they had deliberately overfilled it. And there's this overfill, there's this overflow valve right under the tail. So the, so the excess pumps out and pools around the airplane. So they were pushing it out of the, uh, the fuel, which is what they ought to do. But while, while they were pushing it out of the, the, uh, the fuel, they were rocking it as hard as they could from side to side trying to get the landing gear to collapse. I, I, I lost it then. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean I, the, the, the first thing that I, I, I have never been that mad before or since. I remember screaming, what the hell are you doing with that airplane? And I, I knew there were some motherfuckers in there. There, there. there had to be some, you know. And I remember, now here I am, I'm a second lieutenant, a, a, a black second lieutenant on a strange base in the deep south in 1968. And I got in that ass. You understand me? And I, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, and like, <laughs> I don't know who was going to listen to this, but I, I, I got I to tell that like, like it is. I mean, I got in that ass and I ain't talking about smacking around the butt cheeks. I'm talking about what Red Fox said. He said, I ain't talking about the whole ass. I'm talking about the asshole. I got up in it. Um, and, and I remember the last thing that I remember saying to them is that you guys are worse than the goddamn enemy. And then I look up and here's this master sergeant coming out who must have been the shift supervisor. And uh, he, he said, Lieutenant, let's get you out of here. Because I, I knew he knew that this was about to become a, a serious incident. But afterwards, and now with the Trump thing happening, I, I thought about this, you know, I, I said, but Bill, you know what? What could have caused these guys to lose, the, lose their minds. This is 1968, we're in the middle of a war and these guys out in front of God and everybody are trying to destroy a United States Air Force airplane. That's treason. Yes. They, they were openly committing treason. I said, well, what could have caused it? I said, well, wait, 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 wait. Think about it now, think about it. These guys knew you were coming. They knew what kind of airplane that you were flying. You're flying a supersonic jet airplane. What do you think they think about the pilot? And then, and, and they knew what time you're going to get there. So all of a sudden they look up and here you come, you know, you pitch out and you come back around. These guys are thinking that you're some kind of God and they're giving up all their whiteness to you, but that's okay because you're white. And, but you, you're just a greater white guy than they could ever hope to be. So they gave up, they gave up all their whiteness to me. So when I, when, when, when I landed and they saw that I was black, the worst thing that could have ever happened to them happened instantly. And, and they could not take it back. Couldn't cope. So at, that, so at that point, absolutely nothing else mattered to them. N nothing else. And it's like these Trump supporters. What, 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 Trump, what Obama did to Trump supporters in particular, he told them, in effect, that just being white is no longer good enough. Just being white, you actually have to do something now. And, and, and not only is it not good enough, 
but it hasn't been good enough for so long that you have a two-term black president who won by land, a landslide. It's over. And, that, and that's what these guys are having to, uh, to put up with. I mean, right now, and, I, and, and what, what, what Trump is serving to do, I, I, I imagine, because these guys didn't have a Trump to look up to, to say, hey, it's still cool to be white and incompetent. They didn't have one. <laughs> so they were left up to their own devices. And you saw what they did left, being left up to their own devices. Well, these guys have a Trump now. And he's the perfect person for this, for this kind of, the only, the only thing that, that America means to these died in the world Trump supporters is a place where just being white is good enough. And you take that away, and it has been taken away. You have, you have what you have now. You have it now. And I saw it firsthand. And I, I, I saw what they will do. And I, I, I know that if they'd had the opportunity, they'd have killed me. Because I represented what they, uh, the only thing they had, and they, and they, uh, and they lost it. I'm sorry. Well, I, 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 uh, that's, that's uh, an episode. I'll, I'll, never forget, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I didn't experience physical violence until I went to Boston, went to a Knicks game with a Jewish American, mm-hmm. cheap seats. They were throwing Jews. Yes, crazy white people were throwing Jews off the railing at, at the garden. What? Yeah. And really drunk white people were spilling beers over my head and his head. And I said, I'm so out of here. Well, how, well, how, did they, how, how did they know he was a Jew? Because, oh, yeah, people look Jewish. People look Jewish. <laughs> They have the big nose or something. Is that is that is that much? Of it? Oh my God! <laughs> so we run down the stairs. I stop a cop. He looks at me like, "Really? My problem?" Yeah. What's the deal? And then when my husband and I were in Cambridge, we frequently have like totally crazy people try to run us over with cars, yelling "Gook" out the window. Mm. I got death threats in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I said, you know, this is not what we do in Los Angeles. All my friends who were black in Cambridge said, Juan Marsha, always buy more expensive seats. Never sit upstairs. Crazy white poor people are going to try to kill you. (laughs) You should just know that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, but you know, it's, you know, this is why I know what I experienced was nothing like what you experience every day, but damn, these folks are yeah. crazy. Let people who are feeling despair and everything else, because it tends to be people lower on the, on the pegs. Mm-hmm who lash out at you, it's really hard. Well, white is all, they, white is all they've got. Yes. And, and, that, and, that's, and, and, and that's just how it is. And it's always been that way. You know, yeah. the Ku Klux Klan was started by poor whites. I mean, that's, that's how it is. And, that, and, that's, and that's how it is now. That's how, that's how it got started after the Civil War. And that's, and that's how it is now. Uh, the fact, you know, I still think that America is the greatest country on earth. Absolutely. Now and ever. And the reason I think that is that you can actually have this kind of thing going on. It's been going on since time immemorial. And we still got a country. 
I, I believe I, be, I believe that Trump is president now because America has, has to be tested to see whether this form of government can survive in the 21st century. This Ooh. has been the greatest test that in, in my lifetime, when everything, all, all the different phases of government are being tested now. We've never had a president who was willing to do everything that a president can do. Anything, you see. And he, is, he, he opened up the whole book of possibilities. He said, oh, you mean, you mean the president can actually do this? And he can do that, that, and that? Oh, I'm going to do all this shit. Let's test it. <laughs> and, and I have both houses, and I have the Senate, and they can't even fucking impeach me. I can literally do whatever I want. And, and the, the executive branch has never tested the, uh, the, the, this country the way he's testing it. Let's see. I want to see. I want to see whether or not America can, uh, can maintain its form of government. Is it possible for America to become a dictatorship? Is it possible? This is the closest I've ever seen in my lifetime or heard anything about historically. So let's see. Let's see. And we're seeing right now. Okay. Suppress the vote. Do, do whatever you've got to do. And let's see if, if America is actually bigger than Trump and, and, his, uh, and his followers, you see. So th this apparently was meant to be. Now, that's, that's the only conclusion I can come to. And right now we're seeing it. I believe, I, I believe in America. Hell, I went to Vietnam. I, I risked my life, you know, for a year on a daily basis just because, uh, because, because I wanted to. It's as simple as that. And, and the schools that I went to to, fly, to, to learn to fly the airplane uh, that I flew in Vietnam was in Louisiana. And, and when I got there, they had this list of places because I, I, I couldn't live on base of where the students could go, except that blacks couldn't go there. Black, blacks couldn't. When I got to the school in Louisiana, the list at, at the base that gave all the places where you could go to Holiday Inn or Amada or whatever it was, they didn't have blacks. I, I, had, I had to end up at some place like Tobacco Road and the woman didn't want me there. The, the only reason she accepted me is because on the phone, she couldn't tell I was black. And I asked if they had any room and she said, sure. And Carol and I and, and, and my, my roommate who just happened to be going through there, show up in the middle of the night, we be walk in and she says, uh, what y'all want? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to attend the board now. I, I just called you and, uh, and you said they're just playing. Oh, we don't, we don't, we don't have any room. I, I said, wait, wait a minute. I said, are you the only one here? She said, yeah. I said, then you're the one I talked to. So, and you told me that you have plenty of room. So what's up? I mean, I, I'm here now. Why, why, why do you all of a sudden don't have any room? And I think what she did, when she looked at me and she realized that no white people come there. They're all at the Holiday Inn. So if I, if I go back to the base and say, hey, you know what, yada, 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 she said, I'm not going to ever get anybody. So, well, I'm going to let this nigga stay here then. So that's what happened. And so I ended up staying there for, for I guess that the school was like three weeks. So we stayed there for three weeks in Alexandria, Louisiana in 1968. So, uh, so I've, seen, I've seen the seamy side of it. Um, blacks, uh, unlike the Japanese or the Italian or any other group of people, blacks, blacks are the only people who, who, who came to this country without, ostens without ostensibly coming here to improve their way of life. I don't care. What, and I don't care how, how, well, how, how you ended up here. I don't care what happened to you once you got here. I mean, everybody has their own cross to bear. 
but nobody came here under the same circumstances that we did. Not, not, not only did we not come here to, to ostensibly improve our quality of life, we're the only people who ever came here who weren't allowed to maintain their own culture. I don't care whether you're Japanese, Chinese, Irish, you, 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 first of all, you knew where you came from. You were, you, you were, you were allowed to maintain your culture. You were, when, when the slaves got here, if, if, uh, if I was talking to a guy in my, in my native tongue and they heard it, I may never see this guy again, period. Nobody, the, the, the fact that, and, and, and this is my bedrock, okay? Nobody has come under the circumstances that we've come here and, and to, and to, and you know, we're not talking about a thousand years. We're talking about maybe 400 years and we've gone from change to the presidency. So people may say, well, you know, black, you guys sure I'm moving slow. Slow, that's warp speed, given what we had to overcome, you see. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not bragging. I mean, this is just what, what happened, you see. And so it has to see how fast you've gone, you know. And, and, yeah. and, not, and not only that, not only that, but, but what, what, what white people did, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't deliberate. They, they only took the strongest people to, uh, to become slaves. They're going to have weaklings as slaves. They didn't want strong people. And then they subjected them to the worst trip in the history, one of the worst trip, trips in the history of mankind. That, that trip over here was devastating. Millions of blacks died. Over, over that period of time. And so the ones that showed up were the strongest of the strong, especially Will. Will, the, the Will, as a matter of fact, Lerone Bennett wrote a book called Those Who Refuse to Die. And that, and when you imagine being chained to somebody and, you know, in your own excrement and no, no reason to have it that things are going to be any better once you get there. You see, and having the will to live, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how long it's going to take. The only thing you know, this is the worst treatment you've ever experienced in your life. And you still refuse to die, you see. So anyway, that, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's that. Marsha, and I think this is a good segue because we talked about a, we talked about a lot and you guys can hear me fine now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, so um, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about kind of like, you know, we touched upon raising me and Tommy and I think we'll, I want to end kind of there, but I think that one of the things and, you know, kind of dad, what you're speaking to is kind of how you're able to, you know, approach this new phase of your life, you know, without mom and kind of without really being beholden to anyone and really having to be happy with where you're at and where you're going and whatever it took to get here being kind of worth it. And I would say that one thing that strikes me about both you and Marsha knowing you as well as I do that, you know, having gone through, you know, what dad you described earlier is like the biggest tragedy of your life. And obviously losing Don for you, Marsha was extremely, extremely hard for everyone. And I can identify with that obviously too. What is it you think that like, how do you speak to resilience? Because I think that that's something that people are really not struggling with, but I, well, yeah, they are struggling with resilience because this just seems like such relentless shit. And a lot of people I think are faltering on how can you persist through all of this, through, through some times that, you know, are potentially the darkest a lot of us have ever experienced or will experience um, kind of, it, for you personally, like we can start with you, Marsha, kind of like what is resilience meant to you and how have you kind of persisted, you know, 
after over seven decades and encountering all the different things you have, including, you know, losing Don? Well, you know, when we lost Don, um, I, I didn't call Tom from Kaiser, as the doctor said, better call anybody who needs to be here. It, it took it took all the breath out of me, but you know, in many ways, I knew that Don was still there. You know, Tom, I needed to be there for Tom. And we both need, I think we both knew we were going to embody that Don was still with us because, you know, Don and Tom are, are Buddhists. They believe in it all coming together. And, and I can take action because I was raised a Christian. I knew that um, we were going to get through it. And frankly, my upbringing with, night, with um, depression musicals by Fred and Ginger Rogers, I knew nothing's impossible I have found, but when my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up. Yes, yeah, so I did all of that stuff, you know, because we needed to carry on. And we carried on with what Don and I had been doing from the time Tom, from the time we stopped going to Lake Tahoe and we started traveling around the world. We needed Tom to continue to see the world and we carried Don with us. Mm -hmm. And he needed to learn lots more about how the world worked and that there could be, you didn't need hope so much as you needed to know you could keep going. And there were ways to keep going. And, um, and, and that's what we've been doing. I, I don't know what else to say. You have to get down to where you find joy in those things that bring you joy. We do the Dodgers, the Lakers. I do tap dancing. Tom sees friends. You know, we do what we need to do. And you keep it close to home. And you keep making it work. And, and I know my husband's with me all the time. I just know that. He's, um, he, he's just a big force in my life. He's well, I definitely, I, I definitely, well, that's really powerful. And I think that like that, you know, it's not like you decide one day how it's all going to go. I think it's a process every day to just do the stuff that works and do the stuff that I think, you know, occurs to you at the time to kind of keep you moving forward. I mean, you know, losing my mom and obviously dad can talk about this too. It was, you know, like the worst thing you always knew was coming, but never wanted it to come and never thought it would happen the way it happened either. And, you know, at the time it happened in my life, I was like, like 32, I guess at that point. Um, and, or 33. And it's like so much still to happen that you want this person to experience like the, you want them to see all the stuff that you want to get the return on their investment, you know, in some ways, like I want them to see who I marry. I want them to see like what big time shit I do that makes it worth all the dioramas and all the, you know, sleepless nights and all the advice and all the sacrifices that they did to, to get me to where I am, which I'm really happy with. But I think that what you said about them being here still, like that's not just some kind of crunchy notion. It's like, you know them and you can call on them because you know exactly what they'd be saying about what you're doing. 
and the kind of weather vane that people can offer you, whether they're physically here or not, I think is also indicative of the kind of strong person that they were. You know, if they're really someone that you miss a lot and that improved your life, then you probably also probably left an impression on you that's so strong that you can call on it whenever you want. And it's actually never going away. So I think that's something that from like a personal grief perspective is really important for people to understand. Um, And I think that in the context of like our more kind of macro resilience, you know, as black people, as people of color in this country, you know, resilience has defined us. And in many ways, I think that it's also been something that has in some ways prevented healing. Cause you're like, I'm strong. Like, like your parents, Marsha, like we went through that horrible internment and we're just gonna not speak about that. You know, that also has consequences, not only because you didn't know anything about it growing up, which who knows how that would have maybe affected your kind of way of looking at things or your trajectory, but also just like, it probably would have been a load off for them not to keep that up. And same with black people. I think that in our community, you know, lots and lots of pressure to kind of, especially for women, to be this like resolute, strong, take every kind of person's burdens on my back, expect nothing in return. That can also be exhausting. Uh, And I think a lot of us at this moment in time in America, given all that's happened with COVID and just enduring Trump and the disappointment of, you know, kind of seeing Obama's legacy lead to this and also the racial justice movement and exposing how much work there is to be done like the resilience is being tested like you know i'm tired of being resilient you know i'm sure you two are as well so um anyway i mean dad do you have anything to kind of say you already kind of spoke a little bit about it well 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 yeah i do and i i mentioned it uh briefly before that after your mom died and and uh i'd been with her all my adult life we got married i got married right, right right before my 24th birthday and when uh, she died, I was 72, 73. Yeah, 73. And uh, so my whole adult life was with her. And she was not only your mom and she was not only my lover, but she was the best friend I ever had in my life, period. Best friend, you know, we spent all of our time together because we wanted to, there was no sense of obligation. You know, we wanted to. And when she died, uh, I, again, I had to do, uh, adopt the philosophy that it was meant to be. It, it was meant to be. And of course, it, 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 uh, I had to uh, find a good reason for that, you see. And uh, so, so also what it, what it forces me to do is not think about a, a, a loss, but to think about, uh, to think about all, all of what we had. You know, I mean, that was 50 years over 50, we were together for over 50 years, from 1972, from 1964 until, uh, until three years ago, you know, to 17. And, and so that, and, and, and plus I still dream about her. I mean, almost a week doesn't go by when, she, when, when she's not part of my dreams. I mean, I can hear her voice, sometimes I can even, even touch her physically. But so, so I, I don't have it as a loss. I have it as an experience that we had and if she was meant to die, then I was meant to go on. And I go on at my own rate. I don't, I don't feel an urgency 
to find somebody else. I mean, how do I, I, I wasn't looking for Carol when I found her. I looked up one day and there she was and that, and that was the end of it. So if it's ever going to happen again, it's going to have to happen the same way because I know, I know how I felt about your mom. And so I know what that feels like. And I know how I have to feel about a person in order to commit the rest of my life. So that's it for me. If I don't find anybody else ever, that's, that's okay. You know, because I had what I had. And that's how I, uh, that's how, as far as resilience is concerned, I don't have any choice. You know, I, 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 tell, I tell people that I don't like to give advice because, well, very seldom do they follow it. And, uh, and, 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 and plus, I tell people what works for me. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what will work for you. So I can't tell you what to do because I don't know what, I can only tell you what I do. And I never, I never have to have any notes or anything or remember anything because I know, I know what I do that works for me. Resilience is, um, is, is the ability to be resilient. <laughs> the ability to know that you can do this. The ability, I, I, I don't think there's a, uh, a quit gene in me or you or your brother. I, I, I firmly believe there are kinds of people. Some people just don't quit. Some people uh, are what they are, you know, and, and I, I also believe that evolution is an ongoing process. It didn't stop with Cro-Magnon or anything else. Ev evolution and, and, and natural selection and all the rest of that stuff is ongoing. We are continuing to evolve. And, 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 and I believe that about me. I believe that I'm continuing to evolve into, into something else. You know, I, I evolve. I, I, I sincerely believe that my best years are still ahead of me, still ahead of me. And, and I said, Bill, you know, that's, you know, you're 77 years old, brother. Are you, are you sure about that? And, and I said, well, you know what? What's the alternative then? To, what's the alternative to that? My worst years are ahead of me. My best years are behind me. Then what the hell do I, what the hell do I have to look forward to then? Just a steady decline un until I get to the point where I'm shitting in my pants and I can't remember my kid's name. Is that, is, is, that, is that what I have to look forward to? If that's the case, take my black ass now while I'm feeling good. Don't take me when I'm 90 and I, you know, and I, I can't remember. I mean, take me then <laughs> if I'm 90 and I, you know, and I, I don't, I can't find my way home. Take, take me then. But I don't believe, I, I don't want to go there then. And, and I, and I believe that hell, your grandmother was 103 years old when she died. Oh. And she still was, her last words were, you know, um, <laughs> were her last words it, it was from Shakespeare. Uh, Anyway, she quoted Shakespeare before she died. Okay, so she was uh, <laughs> she was sharp as a tack, you know. And, uh, and she was still teaching way. bridge. She, she sure was. Yeah. See? So so I know that that uh, it's up. It is up to me. Your mom and I used to say all the time whenever we were out. I don't care where it was. Uh, we used to say, "Well, you know what? There are going to be at least two people here who are having a good time." Because we weren't depending on them to make us have a good time. We, we, we provided our, only, our own good time. And that's what I still do. I understand that I'm not going to put that burden on anybody to make me feel good, to, to, uh, to make me happy. That's, that's way too much burden to put on somebody else to make you happy. You know, so I'm, I, make, I make myself, I'm responsible for my own happiness and my own peace of mind. 
Trump ain't got a goddamn thing to do with my peace of mind. I, I, I won't let him affect my peace of mind. You know, and that's the simplest. Or anybody else. He ain't just Trump. Any, anybody. Anybody. Well, that's, I, that's, that's my I story. Think, I think, well, that's, that's all. I mean, but what both of you said is so poignant and true. And I, I think that that last point, however, is like what everyone, a lot of us are struggling with is like to, you know, to say Trump does nothing to do with my peace of mind is very difficult when you see how much suffering he's causing, how much disruption in your, you know, day-to-day life it's causing. And I think that that, that message of like, you need to take care of you, not take care of you like you're not dependent on anyone else for anything. But I think that like finding your own peace and being able to hold that close when you need and, you know, know when to fight as well, you know? But, 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 so but I think that the, the thing is, uh, I, I don't mean to cut, cut you off. But I, I don't want to forget. I want to forget this point is that well, yeah. you, 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 you are responsible for your own peace of mind. It's, it's, it's not, it's not up to anybody else. And I'm not saying that you don't need people, but you you decide who you need and what they can do for you. You 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 make every decision about your life. You decide who your friends are, who your enemies are, whether you're going to be happy, whether you're going to be sad. If you're sad, uh, how, how long you're going to stay sad? You know, you you make all your decisions, every single one of them. I mean, you you come into this world by yourself. You make all your decisions by yourself. I mean, you you can get get whatever advice you want. And I don't care. You, you, you can read books. You can do whatever. But you have to decide what, what, whether this is something you're going to do. You know, whether this is going to work for you. You decide that. And then you leave, you leave this bad boy by yourself. You know, so I'm not saying you're alone or you're, you're a hermit. But, but, but uh, you are. You're responsible. Fact, responsible. You are responsible for, for your own life. And, what, and, what, and, you, and you decide, I don't care what's going on in the world. You know, I mean, I, I can't even imagine, as bad as things were for Blacks, I can't even imagine one day somebody come, coming in and say, okay, um, hit the road. We're, we're going to take everything you have and get out. I, I can't even imagine what that, what that was like. I can't, I can't even imagine. And, 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 and to come back from that, to come back and everything you had is gone now. You had property, you had businesses, you had money, you had all that stuff. You were living the American dream. And then one day they said, no, you got nothing now. And we got a place for you to stay. And then boom. And there you go. I, I can't even begin to imagine the trauma that that must have been. You got kids, you got, you know, what, what the hell am I going to do? You know, you have I'm relatives sure. who are in the, sure. who are fighting in the war. That, that's, that's whose right. families are interned. I, I didn't that's, know that. That's, that's, oh, yeah, of course we did. I mean, they, they, they that's did. insane. Yeah, it, well, it, it was in, insane, but it, it also lets you know what can happen because it happened here. You know, it actually happened in our lifetimes, you see. So, so uh, uh, I can't imagine that. So, uh, again, everybody has their cross to bear, and it's as bad for them as it is for, for, for whatever your cross is, that's yours to bear. And it's as heavy for you and for them as yours is for you. And, 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 I, and I realize that. So, you know, nobody has any worse off than anybody else. We, have, we, we all came here on a different path, you see. And uh, that's resilience. What the Japanese people did when they came back after having lost everything. And their kid goes to Stanford. It, it, now, that, that's, that's the personification of resilience. 
I don't care what happened. It's not going to beat me. It's, I'm not going to let it beat me. It's not going to be bigger than I am. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's resilience. You, you, you've decided that nothing is bigger than I am. You know, I'm not going to let anything beat me. And that's just how, and you know, hey, you, you, you know, you, you know what we, we had to go through as you, you guys as kids. And you ended up at Stanford, uh, at, at, uh, at, when well, you got into Stanford. You were accepted to Stanford, you're accepted to uh, UPenn, you're accepted to uh, just about every, every place you, you wanted to go, you accepted. You're on the wait list at Harvard, you're on the wait list at Princeton, you, you told Princeton to take a hike. You know, and you and you got in the year. You know, you know, what I mean? and you, you know, so 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 you you did what you had to do. It, Lynn went to Syracuse. You kidding me? So well, so, I think uh, that so I think that like that is a really amazing and helpful definition of resilience. Just to be like the decision to be resilient. Almost, you're like I am exactly going to be bigger. Is. I am going to like like what Marsha you were saying. I'm going to go on because I'm going to go on. And I That's think right. it's kind of like a self-actualizing, you know, choice that we make. So I know that I want to be conscious and, 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 of time. And, and, and what it forces you to do is look for a, a way to go on. Well, that's you what, have to, because that's, that's the only way to do something do. is by figuring out a way to do it and yeah, then right. learning on the spot. But I, so I, I want to uh, kind of push to our conclusion, which is, you know, given all this, what is the like? What do you think the future holds, and what do you think it's going to look like for for me and Tommy and Lynn and a whole, you know, billions of people to try and figure this mess out? You know, long after you know you're gone, presumably. Um, and like, what kind of world do you think is possible? I mean, Marcia, you've been you know you spent a, a career in education, kind of forming, you know, the minds and opportunities of the next generation, kind of. Where is your mind at? Like when you think about what we have to kind of like what we got to do now, you know, because there's a lot to be done. Okay. So I will say, and I know my son disagrees with me, but I think, I think that Isabel Wilkinson's book cast was really helpful for me because it looked at the Indian cast. It looked at Nazi Germany and it looked at our American casts. And I could see where I knew where I was on that list. And I happened in a world that let me move forward. And I continued to try to pay forward as my husband has with Yale admissions and Harvard admissions. Because more people need to have exposure to the way things work. And you had it, Trey. You have that ability to get along with all kinds of people and you have an amazing personality. And we're now in an era where there are possibilities and it's not so much from books, although I think the research needs to go on. But you know, Ava DuVernay did When They See Us. Um, we have, um, Five Bloods, which gave me a completely different way of looking at the Vietnam War. Really amazing. There was uh, Wynn's book on sympathizers. You know, there's there are so many multimedia ways of sharing stories that have to be shared in order for us all 
to create that kind of radical empathy. And it has to include, and I know you can do this, Trey, it has to include the dominant culture. It's got to get them involved and to buy in. And I know we don't always trust it, but you know, I have some of my dearest friends are woke. You know, the people in my book group are white. They've been fighting together forever. So, you know, we are, we have to enlarge all of that. And there's certain, you need to know your own strengths and weaknesses. Mine was, I knew math. I took, I was the person that said, she not only doesn't, what's that word? I, I net, never let anything, I just yelled at people if they were being jerks. You know, when they'd say like really discriminatory, horrible things, I just cursed. And you know, yeah. stop. You cannot stop me. You were so wrong. And you know, it's okay. I knew why I was doing it. I never got mad at anyone who... Who didn't have it coming. <laughs> didn't have it coming. You know, that was really stupid. And I let no one get away with it. And, you know, good news is no one could cross me on anything that was a number. So I was good at it. I survived many chancellors and many others. Thank God. You have skill sets that you need to think about because you have that amazing personality and ability to pull people together. And if you can do that, that's the place forward, you know, and you stay close to home and you, I think, I just think that's what matters. I think the multimedia is a way that matters. I think we have to do climate. We have to do education. We have to do health. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot to do. And I think that you know what, uh, what's your, what's your, I mean, I think that just for me to jump in, I think that like the point that, it's going to take a coalition of us really serious about this shit to do something um, is, is very true. I mean, cause I mean, honestly, even if you think about the last few months and maybe these, maybe the progress or the potential for progress is overblown after George Floyd. But one of the reasons it felt different, at least initially is because all the white people, you know, or not all obviously, but substantially more than were expected to come to, you know, help out did come and are constantly and are and even more are kind of learning in ways that maybe aren't as perceptible, you know? So I think that like the ability to draw people together around, a, I think getting a common vision together that people can all see themselves in, you know, like a white man who has lots of money is not going to be, is not going to be compelled by the same, you know, exact, fit into a world that I would be compelled by. But each of us have a different thing that we could, if we could figure out the, over, the overarching place that has places for everyone, or at least everyone who's like willing to be a decent human being, then we can, I think, develop a plan. Um, it's just a matter of, do we have the will to, to forgive and kind of like, you talk about, we don't always trust them. I mean, that's an understatement. You know, I think people are, at the such far ends of trust in this country and everywhere else that, you know, even within races, um, that it's very, very difficult. But I think that that, 
That's true. Like that, I mean, that's what's going to take. Whether we can do it or not needs to, you know, remains to be seen. Well, you know, the, the thing that I know for sure is, is that there's no end. There's no final place. Uh, we are constant, constantly in the midst of the process. You mm-hmm. see, we are, we are, this is where we are. If, if you want, like, <laughs> this is where we are. You know, I guess if you want to know how you turned out, this is how you turned out. So you're constant, you're, you're constantly in the process. So whatever you, so whatever you can envision is if, if there's a, a heaven, whether you're, you're, you're in the process of getting there then. and you got to go and, and the route through there to there is here, is right here. So this is the process. The fact that uh, I went from, from 1943 to now and every instant, every heartbeat of that trip, was part of the process that got me here. Well, that's continuing. If you want to know what, what the future looks like, it looks like what we're doing right now. What, what, there is no going back. This world has changed forever now. We're, we're doing stuff like this, and, 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 and this is how it is, and this is how it's going to be. And this isn't the future, this is now. This is not going away. This is part and parcel of what the world is going to look like. Uh, I, I, I told people a long time ago, with the advent of the internet, the world has become and is continuing to become one place. Before, everybody was isolated. If you lived in Zimbabwe, you didn't know what people look like in Sweden or what they live like. Now, all you got to do is get on your computer and somebody from Zimbabwe can talk to somebody in Sweden and see them. Well, but this is forcing everybody to say, well, wait a minute. You're living in a room that's bigger than my village. Or your room is bigger than my house. You mean you live in there by yourself? Yeah. Well, what's that in there? Well, that's my toilet. What do you mean your toilet? You know, well, as you know, you go in there, you do what you have to do, and you flush it. Flush it with what? With water. I love the I love the idea that there's a there's internet about? and there's Zoom, but there's no toilets. But let's continue. Well, okay. But but the, <laughs> the point the point is. I know. I got to walk a quarter of a mile to a pump to get water to cook in, and you're and you're and you're flushing shit down the toilet with, with potable water. What's going on? What what is happening here? And and so everybody is seeing what everybody else is doing, and it's making us. It's it's like a marriage. We have two previously strangers getting married, and when you become as you become one person, sparks are going to fly, fly. I mean, that's why, they, that's why they make you take a vow when you get married. They, they don't make you take a vow for easy stuff. Like, yeah, I'm going to eat me some chitlins every, every day. I, I, I don't have to take a vow for that. But I, had, but, but I had to take a vow to get married, though. I had to actually promise that I was going to stay married to this person. Love, respect, honor, obey, no matter what. I mean, they say richer and poor and, and sickness and health, but that's everything. So they might as well just say, no matter what, until death do you part. But, but that's what your mom and I agreed to do. And it wasn't without conflict. And I tell, people over, I tell people over and over again, I don't know a single couple that's been married for any appreciable length of time who haven't had issues that other people have divorced over. Period. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll make that blanket. I don't know anyone. It, it, it certainly was the case with me and your mom. But so, so you have to decide that you're going to be, be married no matter what, because being together is, is, uh, 
is is bigger than any of the issues that you may encounter. You know, so it's but that's, but that's the way it is with life. That's the way. That's why. That's why the people that came back from the internment camps could make those that made. I'm, I'm sure some of those folks committed suicide. I'm I'm sure they did because they couldn't imagine a life of a life after this. They couldn't imagine it. So that's when you commit suicide. I mean, you you can't imagine a life after this. So anyway, that's that's what you decide to do, and that's what uh, you're doing. That's, that's what you're doing, and that and that's what I'm doing. But but that's what the world is doing now. The, the world is, is 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 trying to is 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 coming together, and uh, and this is what it looks like. And, and sparks be flying, <laughs> you know. But, but but you know what? They've always been flying. In my in my in my in my lifetime, in my in my lifetime, there's been a world war. There's been a, the Korean War. There's been the Vietnam War. A president was assassinated. A president was kicked out of office. A vice president was kicked out of office. Another uh, attempt on the president's life. And 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 if, and this is why I, I believe in America. And if you if you weren't listening to the news, then you never know what happened. I mean, folks were, were rioting in some places, but but the the ship just kept going along, going along. That's 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 why I know that this, this, this latest episode will just make America stronger. It just will just make us stronger because we want it to. No, nobody wants to give up on America. No, 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 nobody. I mean, even these Trump supporters say, well, wait, wait a minute. How about the Super Bowl? Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. Hey, we can't go around shooting people because uh, I'm, I want to see the Super Bowl. Stuff that really means <laughs> something to them. You know, so anyway, uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's my story again, and I'm sticking to it. I well, I mean, go on, Marsha, please. To observe, I think you need to think about your own strengths and weaknesses, about your contacts, about what you're good at, and think about how, what you can do. You know, like, what you could do is not what Tom Nakanishi can do. Because he gets mad so fast. But he does things I can't do. You know, I think everyone can like fit, like figure out where you fit and what brings out the most kind of powerful and compelling parts of you and lean into that. I mean, that's the, that's the dream, right? Is to, to sharpen yourself into a tool that's effective and, you know, relevant. So I think that that's, you know, that's honestly like, that's why I wanted to do this episode because I feel like we've done you know, this will be our 31st episode and each in this whole journey that, has been like, is that, is that, is that yeah, right? I mean, somehow, you know, and so I think it's just really putting one foot in front of the other. Like, you don't know where anything's going necessarily, but you do what makes sense at the time. You get your people together, make sure everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows something different. And I know that you guys know so much more than a lot of us, you know, than most people alive. Can I say one more thing? No, oh, of course, please. When I went to Salinas, I actually didn't go to JPL to do moonshots. Um, I actually went to, to teach math to farm workers, and I got sent to the ranchers' kids, whom I could teach because they didn't need teachers. I could not teach migrant farm workers at all. No patience, which is partly why I left. Because mm. you got to learn what your strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't learn to write, so it's, and that means to tell a story till I was in graduate school and I learned there 
not in high school, not in college, that people do first drafts and then they rewrite them. I didn't know people did that. Do you do that? <laughs> I went, how did I miss this? Why was I not taught? So yeah, I stayed in anything quantitative because it was easy. You know, we have to teach. We have to teach. We have to tell stories. We have to tell the stories that matter. We have to bring people together across all kinds of places. It's so important. But, but you know, you, you can only teach what you know. Yes. You see, and I, I, tell, I tell the kids that you can't teach anybody something you don't know. That's correct. So, 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 so you figure out what, what it is that you know, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you always know that. You know, I mean, you may deny this or deny that or something, but but at the end of the day, you always know what the truth is. You about you, I'm talking about now, and what you're going to do with it. Uh, and you know, people who say the now, living in the now, and that, that kind of thing. Well, that's that's all there is. The now is all there is. I mean, the the, the past is a memory. You lose your memory, the past doesn't exist for you. The future is only a concept. And it can change as you change your concept. So the only thing you know for sure, at least I'm, I'm talking about me now. I, I say you a lot, but, but I'm always talking about me. Is that the only thing you know for sure is what's happening right now. You don't know what's going to happen next Wednesday. Hey, you're not even sure what happened last Wednesday. You know, the only thing you know <laughs> for sure is, <laughs> or five minutes ago. But the, the only thing you know for sure, for sure, now we're talking about is what's happening right now. And that's, and that's uh, you know, I try to keep things as simple as possible now, especially now. And so I said, Bill, you know, if you just can be concerned about what's happening now, the rest of it will take care of itself. It always has, always has. Well, and I think that, and, and plus, I think that no that's, option. that's a good place to end. Cause I think that right now we're in a very, well, first of all, right now I feel very grateful Cause it's been such a, it's been even better than I had possibly hoped. And I knew it was going to be good. So um, dad, as always, thank you so much for, for being here and, you know, kind of sharing your wisdom and Marsha, thank you for also bringing your full self to this emotions and, you know, experiences are so important to share. And I think that like there, we can't act on the past that we don't know about. And I think that you guys have done a fantastic job not only kind of sharing what's happened to you and why you guys are so wise now, but, you know, you've given me, you know, I did need it. And I think I got it, which is a little bit of a oomph and a, a, even a renewed commitment to kind of just keep figuring shit out. Cause I know that we can do it. I know that all of us working together, the people I know, the people on the screen. Um, and I think it, as we approach this, like very, uncertain next phase of this country, no matter what goes down in a couple of weeks or whatever, um, it's going to be important to remember all of this. So I thank you very much. I love you both very much. And uh, I guess we'll keep doing what we do. So thank you. And Marsha, I can't, I can't wait to meet you personally. We, we have a lot in common, kid. Oh, I know that when, it, when it's time, it's going to be a party. Whippy <laughs> <laughs> Guthrie wrote, the fascists will lose. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're losing now. Oh, they lost the um, All right, well, great. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, bye now.